That was by Foreigner, and this is podcast 192, entitled How to Save the Church, But Our Lips Are Sealed. And I want to uh, outline my short case, hopefully within about 18 minutes, uh, and also give the ripost or antidote to what I see in relationship to the extremely sorry and actually catastrophic origins of my own uh, element within the uh, historic Christian church today. Mary and I attend services uh, often on Sunday mornings um, in uh, the uh, suburban communities where we live and surrounding us. And um, with the exception of Calvary St. George's Church, to which we commute by train in New York City whenever we get the chance, we have found, or shall I say I have found, that the services we attend at a variety of um, parishes in the area, not just one, are so uniformly torpid that they actually make you just want to scream if you actually have the experience and the sense of urgency to quote our wonderful friends, Farner being the second greatest um, rock and roll group in the history of music, the first natural being Journey, but Journey stood on the shoulders of Farner. The um, overwhelming impression you get if you have any real um, sort of panoramic experience of churches as we just have had to have in our lives and actually sit there in the pew is the overwhelming torpor and listlessness and scatter shot um, ineffectiveness of the uh, so-called liturgies that we have to sit through week after week after week, with the magnificent exception of the work of Jacob and Melina Smith in um, New York City at Calvary St. George's. Now, let me add to that the very alarming and catastrophic facts of the last couple of weeks that have made me wish to um, uh, speak about uh, the antidote for actually the way of saving the church, but our lips are sealed, and the catastrophic facts that have come directly to our attention. First, my former parish in Westchester County, New York, on the Hudson River, has closed. There has been a, an Episcopal ministry there uh, since 1832, and a very beautiful building since about 1848, with some of the most um, um, really um, stunning, simple Protestant American early pre-Civil War stained glass windows by John uh, Bolton uh, in that church forever, and the church has closed, and I've been over there and have spoken, and I've gotten the lay of the land, and the uh, church has gone out of existence. The vestry was down to five, and I think in the final account with two resignations, I think uh, it closed out with a priest in charge who was moving on, uh, I think possibly as few as three people in the vestry, and this was a parish which was absolutely jammed uh, in the period when Mary and I were given the privilege of serving it years ago. And to think that it's closed, and then I was informed that of the four uh, parishes in the Ossining Briarcliff uh, little area on the Hudson there, uh, only one has a settled uh, a minister, uh, a, a, and I, I don't believe that she's full-time, a priest in charge. Priest in charge is always the um, mark of a church which cannot yet sustain itself to have a full-time rector. And so it goes on a kind of probationary period of priest in charge. We, Mary and I, d did that exact pattern. Now, um, but that's not all. <laughs> Here's this ancient parish which was just thriving at a certain point. We don't take credit for it, but we did see it. Uh, I found out this week that the parish we served on Long Island for six and I think actually seven summers in Toto 
the Episcopal Summer Chapel in Amagansett, Long Island, which is just adjoining East Hampton, Long Island, is uh, being proposed to change uh, its um, entire arrangements from being a summer chapel serving an extremely busy and very, very overpopulated but thriving and commercially very active resort community there in the summers, known as Amagansett, Long Island, that the uh, St. Thomas Chapel there is down, I was saw in a newspaper article, apparently to an average attendance of 19 on a summer Sunday, and a plan is afoot to, for the diocese to, um, to retool the entire thing to make it a center for Hispanic ministry in the east end of Long Island. A very laudable aim, but um, here is a parish which, uh, in its actual organic setting as it's presently constituted, which is no different from when we were uh, there years ago, a place highly sought after by people in the New York area and elsewhere as a place of summer vacation with gorgeous beaches and thousands of people coming, can only muster, according to the um, uh, newspaper quote from someone there, uh, 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 an average attendance of 19. And when we were there, it was 75 minimum and uh, sometimes could be as high as 100. Uh, And that was summers in July and August. Uh, Again, we don't take credit, but we saw it in a very different stage of the game. And uh, to think that this organic ministry in that resort community uh, cannot um, uh, stay afloat without having a completely retooled ministry, very laudable, but not endemic to the actual immediate locale where it is. Mary and I had always thought that we might, if we could only convince the Diocese of Long Island, which we completely failed to do, to give us the chance to to work for a period of years, if we ever had it, outside work from Amagansett and the rectory there and uh, towards Montauk, where there at that time was not an Episcopal presence and establish a kind of church plant in Montauk and then um, build it up because the population was only growing and it was a thriving community commercially, et cetera, et cetera. But to see that, and these are, you know, parishes that we've loved and served and it's unbelievable. Now, what is actually going on here? Now, let me um, say to bring this to cases is that There are a number of causes for this, but let me say what is needed. Rather than to say what caused it, let me say what, uh, in our experience, and we have seen these uh, challenging situations because they weren't exactly a piece of cake or a walk uh, back in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, but um, the demographics have actually not substantially changed in these areas, to use that constant euphemism today, but they haven't. And therefore, these parishes, we saw them also under threat, and we saw them come back uh, really with great joy and uh, a privilege and fulfillment. Now, the um, what's needed came home to me with devastating force through a movie. And I want to use this opportunity to talk about uh, what the church uh, needs to do to find hope. Not through whatever, quote, Paul Zoland, quote, may think is right, but rather through what a movie, unmistakably and unarguably, because it's a movie based on facts, on amazing facts, showed me not so long ago. In 1959, um, the uh, American actor, Hollywood actor Robert Montgomery, who was once a very famous Hollywood actor, became a director. He had a directing gift, and he directed a movie um, uh, towards the end of his career called The Gallant Hours. Now, The Gallant Hours stars James Cagney and a load of Hollywood wonderful actors uh, in the story of Admiral uh, Halsey, Bull Halsey, 
who was the um, commanding um, officer in the American fleet and of all the American military arms at that point uh, during the famous Battle of uh, Guadalcanal, I want to say 1942. A climactic, decisive battle, as it turns out, and a battle in which uh, my wife Mary's father fought directly in the 1st Division of Marines and was absolutely in the absolute thick of it and won a Purple Heart, among other decorations, um, in the Marine Corps on Guadalcanal. But what is so powerful about this story, which today is dismissively referred to as a what is it called? A document, a, a bio. There's a word for it. A documentary, a rockumentary, a documentary. It's um. That's it, not fair. It's a, it's a work of art in which the narrator Robert Montgomery, who directed the film, tells the story of how uh, this man, uh, in a series mainly of just conversations around a wardroom table with um, officers and subordinates and admirals and um, commanders, um, sort of comes to the great command decisions, which result in the decisive victory at Guadalcanal and at the naval battle of Guadalcanal at the cost of many, many American lives and many lives on both sides. Now, what you learn from seeing The Gallant Hours, which is unsentimental and like the best of all war novels, Guard of Honor by James Gould Cousins, never actually takes you into the theater of combat, but is a brilliant evocation of war because it restricts its gaze entirely to the strategic um, decisions and emerging strategic decisions of uh, Admiral Halsey and his team, you learn several things about uh, how to lead an organization, in this case the United States Navy and uh, Air Force and Marines and Army, to victory. And a couple of things come out of the movie which are uh, extraordinarily um, confrontative when dealing with the very sorry record of, in practice, it's an empirical fact, statistically, in reality, of my my own denomination, which now is um, closing uh, a church which we loved and served for six and a half years, has done so. It's not going to happen. It has happened. And is uh, the same is uh, in view, at least. Um, I think the Village Board of Amagansett may not have accepted the plan of the diocese, but uh, the plan was only in response to a very strong arithmetical and almost geometrical declension in attendance and uh, participation at uh, the actual normal parish church, which is an organic entity to serve the people around it, God willing. Now, what do we learn from Admiral Halsey and his team? Well, we learn first, as we could have learned from Charles Simeon, the English Church of England evangelical leader who thought so strategically and biblically about leadership, Simeon taught, and we learn from Admiral Halsey and Robert Montgomery's movie, The Gallant Hours, which is available on iTunes, and you can buy it. It's on a a made-to-order DVD now. You learn there that first, everything depends on the quality of the person selected to the task. It all boils down to Admiral Halsey. Now, he's not a great man, as he is at great pains to say at the beginning and the end of the movie, but he is a particularly man who handled very powerfully the circumstances which faced him. And the thing basically boils down to him and how he inspired a team of people. And what has happened in my experience at the church is that we have that the people that, were, that are coming forward just aren't really the, the highest quality people. They're the highest quality people in terms of focus, uh, mental energy, um, and giftedness are either going into the arts, a small group of them, or they're going into uh, business, uh, the great, you know, the iBanker thing, the Goldman Sachs thing. If you could only take some of the recruiting first-year class of McKinsey and Company and divert them into the Episcopal ministry, you would have something. And in the old days, you did. There were always a few people, especially after warfare, that uh, got the idea and were called. Uh, Paul Moore was one of them. Leland Henry was one. The 
my predecessor at the uh, Scarborough, um, who had been touched by their experience of suffering in war and were called by God into the Christian ministry. Now, that's happening in a very few cases, but not many. I know of a few, but for the most part, we're getting people who are attracted to liturgy, who are attracted to the idea of sacred community, who are attracted by certain social progressive distinctives and ideology, but who are not passionately, overwhelmingly, and urgently concerned to do their uh, fellow man good by saving, helping to save his soul by the power of God through the Holy Spirit and through the cross of Christ. It just isn't there. Those people are in other places. Uh, the people that we're sending into these high-stress situations pastorally are people who are in love with community or in love with a worshiping space or in love with, with a horizontal entity, but they're, uh, and they're in love with God, but they're not able to have the urgent, absolute focus sense that something very mightily important is at hand. And every church service I go to now, with very few exceptions, and with one significant one, which I've mentioned in New York City, you never get the impression that anything really at stake, that there's anything really urgently at stake, urgent, urgent emergency. A friend of mine who's involved and has been somewhat disillusioned with Scarborough Parish over the years um, was recently very ill, and he came very close to death. I mean, within just a few weeks of the voice that you're hearing here, he came very close to to a, to a potentially terminal heart uh, a crisis. And he describes what it was like as the doctor was attempting to uh, put his heart on the right, uh, stabilize his heartbeat. And uh, three different procedures were tried with failure. And he honestly suddenly realized, you know, I may die in five minutes. I mean, I may actually die in five minutes. And I mean, this is do or die. Well, you know, the actual fact is almost everybody in these churches I visit has is in a place of urgency at some point or another. They're desperate in their marriage. They're desperate about a child. They're desperately losing in regard to a to a to a grown daughter. They're desperately um, flailing around in their job and they've actually lost their job if the truth were known. And a great deal of money is at stake and they might have to mortgage their houses and everything is sinking and they go to church if they go at all. And all they get is uh, a kind of hectoring, uh, uh, calls to do uh, wonderfully laudable social projects, but on almost no gas, and you get a decreasing number of people who are being decreasingly defeated by increasing burdens to do something that no one else can do unless they have unless they had gas in the engine, and there's less gas in the engine than ever, and so you get a congregation of 19, or of 12, or of 7, or a vestry of 5 with two resignations, making 3. That is what is happening. And so in Halsey, you see everything depends on the person, on the urgency. Halsey comes to the first meeting of the wardroom as the, his uh, soldiers on Guadalcanal are being pummeled to death by Admiral Yamamoto's brilliant strategy of, to get Henderson Field back. They are dying in, in the hundreds and thousands, hundreds. And, uh, and uh, he says, gentlemen, we have five days to turn this situation around. We have exactly five days to turn the situation around. And um, that sense of urgency, do or die, is completely missing. The quality of personnel, uh, because we are so oriented to horizontal understandings of ministry rather than vertical, is pathetic. And so we're not getting people of, of great urgent need. We're getting, in a sense, very well-meaning dabblers. I know that's strong, but uh, very well-meaning dabblers who don't have a clue about what people are really suffering with. We just need to have AA people just invade our church. 
churches. So what I've said to you is the quality of the personnel, the sense of urgency, it seems almost entirely lacking or has been lacking for decades and decades. And the result is, no matter how good we may be in terms of current thought, how inclusive and marvelous and terrifically welcoming we are, we say, <laughs> with exceptions, of how um, terrifically great and diverse uh, we are offering here, we just become another kind of college social service organization at a smorgasbord fair in connection with freshman registration, as opposed to, but you know, you're dying, my friend. Uh, we can save you. We can, we can, we make, we can give you the difference between life and death, and then money will be no problem. Buildings will be no problem. People will be no problem. But um, I've said all this, and I hope you're interested in it. But um, because I have no confidence that the church will ever get this message, um, I will have to say that uh, with the greatest goodwill, a slight wink in the eye, and a great belief in the power of God and Jesus Christ and His gospel, our lips are sealed.